0: Hello there! Welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host Corey Haley. Today we're speaking with Armand Dusset, who is one of the world's foremost pro academics and teachers in education for this digital age. He's a leader, inspirational speaker, coach, columnist, and author. He's spoken to tens of thousands of teachers on every continent and key international organizations. He's received multiple awards like the Governor General Award for Teaching Excellence and the Canadian Prime Minister's Award for Teaching Excellence as well. Now, in this interview, I need to apologize because we had some internet connection issues and sometimes it's a bit choppy, but we think it still works. And you know what? Uh, in a in a pure COVID moment, we were both at home, and so uh, sometimes you can hear our kids in the background. And so those are pretty familiar noises. If you're an early years teacher, or if you've got some kids of yourself uh, of your own at home. Now, if you like what you're hearing, connect with us. You can go to our website at intersectioneducation.com. You can follow us on Twitter at intersection ed, and we're even on Facebook. And you know what? We really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes, or more importantly, you just tell your friends about us. So thanks a lot. Here's my conversation with Armand Doucette. The Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Armand Doucette, thanks for joining us today. How are you today?
1: Uh, good, thank you for having me, Corey.
0: Hey, I'm happy to have you on. We've been uh, trying to work this out, so I, uh, I'm i looking really forward to it. John, I want to start just talking generally about teaching, and I know that uh, you've been quoted as as saying and calling teaching a calling. Um, I'm wondering, what are some of the events in your life that led you to realize that you wanted to become a teacher, and why you kind of think that teaching is a calling?
1: That's a good question, Corey. Uh, it started off with, uh, I've always been sort of in the in the profession in some ways. Uh, I, I've been a soccer coach since the age of 14 or 13. It's been so long now. Uh, and I've coached most of my life, which in some ways is, is teaching just through sports. Uh, but also, I've had the opportunity to have some mentors throughout my life within my family and within... Uh, within the Moncton region, that have really had an influence on my life, and as I as I progressed as a soccer coach, and as my leadership uh, skills progressed as well through some other mediums, uh, I realized that you know what the the largest impact that I could have is is by becoming a teacher and helping others sort of find their passions. So, I think so that's sort of how it, how it came about. Uh, obviously, there's some stories on when I started to realize when that happened. Uh, but in terms of the second part of that question, in terms of a calling, uh, I think it almost needs to be in in many ways uh, because w- when you are teaching, it's a it's a twenty four seven job. It, it, you don't have any time off. Uh, you're always on, particularly now with COVID nineteen. Uh, but it, it's the old way of looking at it as being a role model for students Uh, w- wherever you are, uh, whenever they see you. Uh, everything is a teachable moment. Uh, So it is a calling, but it is also a profession. And we got to watch out when we use the word calling, because oftentimes people take advantage of that. And we've seen that uh, across the world where Uh, you know, teachers that are volunteering their time because they do believe it's important. uh, But then we mandate them to volunteer their time. So it's stuff that we need to think about as we go forward.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that we do need to be careful with that, you know, back and forth of protecting our profession. And yeah, we're helping out kids. But that's interesting you bring that up. I know that you have done a lot of work and you continue to do a lot of work with teachers globally. And I'm wondering, are are you seeing that as an issue right now, that whole idea of teachers being taken advantage of, especially in COVID? Or do you think that it's kind of been the same before and after the pandemic?
1: Uh, It's funny you ask that. I don't know if it's COVID or if it's it's interesting because globally i've been in a lot of conversations particularly in the last two weeks with the world teacher day and the world education week a global forum for the oecd and there's so many others that in the last couple of weeks and i think it's common to hear teachers say that you know they're answering uh, teams at eight o'clock on a saturday night to, to make sure that kids are are aware of what's going on and uh, the, they are going door to door to deliver meals during COVID. There's, uh, you know, meetings at all hours and to try to get caught up professional development, uh, being able to do the assessment when, when needed. So right. The medical profession at this moment are doing double the overtime. Uh, The difference is that we're on fixed salaries and that you 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 get paid a certain amount, and teachers do get paid well in Canada. There's no question there. Uh, can we get paid better? Yes, definitely. Uh, but we do get paid for those hundred and eighty five or hundred and ninety days depending on where you are. Uh, and that's that's mapped out at sort of forty to fifty hours a week, really. Uh, but the reality during for teaching when you're on, it's anywheres between sixty to ninety if you're honest. and COVID, I would add was probably more depending on how 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 you're approaching it from a from a school perspective so we are talking about student wellness and we're talking about community wellness but you know b- burnout of teachers is is real in many areas and you're seeing early retirement happening uh, all over the world you're also seeing young teachers that are are, are having this to face and at the start of their career and realizing okay this is not what i signed up for um so it's it, i think we're going through an interesting time And depending on how we take care of of the teacher workforce who takes care of the students, uh, you could see uh, the teacher issue of 2030 of having 69 million teachers that we are going to be missing by 2030 to reach SDG 4. That could amplify quite quickly. Uh, depending on how we approach it.
0: Yeah, I'm really worried about that whole issue of taking care of teachers right now as well. I think that teachers are struggling with workload issues. I think that they're struggling with their own mental health issues, feelings of isolation. Um, you know, they're cohorting up with their, their with their school and their students, and so they feel they can't cohort with their family. And I think that there's also additional burdens that's being put on teachers because of the mental health of their students, and they're supporting that and... Um, I feel like at times they're feeling like Atlas a little bit and, and, and they've got the weight of all of those students, um, their their overall health and their learning on their shoulders. What are you seeing in terms of that, in terms of mental health? What are you seeing in terms of the response of teachers to support students right now through this pandemic?
1: To, to answer that first part of the question, I think you've you hit it on a nail right there in terms of it is quite isolating for a teacher, particularly at the younger grades in terms of elementary and middle school, where oftentimes you don't have a lot of co teaching happening. You might have professional learning communities with uh, other teachers within your grade level, but the reality is you're usually alone in the classroom. High school, you're seeing a lot, you're starting to see more multidisciplinary approaches, but again, it could be isolating. Uh, but with prep time, you at least have a time. To, to to chat right so traditionally prep time in elementary and and middle school comes after school uh, so i i think you are seeing that atlas in terms of having the weight of the world on your shoulders and and i completely agree with you when it comes to their families as well uh you know none of us want to bring home covid19 from being at school and then interacting with our parents and having us being the reason why right So uh, I think as people sort of realize how quickly this disease spreads, you know, you might be in in the orange zone or in the yellow zone, but for teachers, you might actually be pushing yourself in the other one just to make sure that uh, you protect your family life. Right. Uh, I think another element to that is also that the workforce is predominantly female, uh, particularly in elementary and middle school and they also have a lot of them have young families and and now you have to realize that okay they got to monitor what's going on and, and deliver what's happening there but at the same time uh the family life falls on them as well and, and that's another major issue that we're, we're seeing right Uh because as we go forward you know there, there's all sorts of different approaches to it globally uh, but you have you know teachers are going to be forced to come to school or we're going to deliver from eight to five while they're trying to figure out how are they going to deliver the learning for their own kids right so and I think all families are going through that as well but it's it's a bit harder on the teachers because they have so many students to cover as well really approached it with the Maslow before bloom in terms of wellness and really gone in and said you know what the curriculum is what it is we're going to deliver what we can But if we approach it with student wellness and teacher wellness and stay true to that, uh, I've seen some success in in terms of that happening. Uh, I think you're right, uh, Corey. I I really do think that that's going to be a, a major issue as we progress. And I think school systems have not really reinvented themselves in terms of the school year. Well, we've seen it in professional sports where they've bubbled up and they figured out some different scheduling and they've done some different things for the playoffs and so on. In school, we've relatively stayed the same. We've seen blended learning. We've seen distance learning. We've seen you're going back to school fully. But we haven't seen, you know what, two months in, we're going to give you a week off from kids. And we're going to let you get some professional development, reflect, get some co-teaching together. Uh, you know get some planning really look at okay what worked what didn't why what do we need to focus on going forward with the kids that we have which would really be a bit more revolutionary right uh, I, I feel like we're still not innovating to the point where w- we are helping each other out to the fullest extent
0: i want to talk to you about another theme or topic that you have spoken about and this is idea of the importance of community for great teaching you know that that's changed this whole idea of you know what community is and who can even be inside of the community and the support of a community during during this pandemic and i'm just wondering what have you seen for the schools that are doing it right you know schools that have leading community builders um, and that can be inside the school as groups of teachers. That could be, you know, those those connections with the outside one. As we switch to remote learning, as we switch to coming back with all these restrictions of who can be inside of a school, the different connections that we can have with school. How, how have you seen that idea of community and the importance of community for great learning change?
1: I, I think... I think it's kind of a two-way street in this situation, Corey. I I think as as an education system, we've realized that uh, communication is transparent and two-way. It it is not just uh, a one-way street anymore. Um, I also think that we're realizing how much expertise is out there today and how a teacher's role is pivoted uh, in, in many ways to... You are still a content expertise, particularly in high school. Uh, But as you go from elementary and middle school, that content expertise changes a bit, right? Because you're teaching so many different subjects, you might not be an expert in all those subjects, but you might be an expert in a couple of them. So uh, as you're progressing through this, you become very much a project manager. But also uh, in charge of that personalization and that advisory role, that mentorship role for those students and how it touches so many different sides. So the competencies, the skills, the social, emotional and the curriculum outcomes. And, And I think that's really evolved over the last 10, 15 years where we've realized it's not just about curriculum outcomes our role is so much larger. Now, has it evolved completely in everything that we've done in terms of pre-service teaching? Are we doing more social working classes? Are we doing more psychology class? Not enough yet. I, don't, I also don't think our internships have changed enough so that we really concentrate on the art part. There's still a lot of it, it that's based on classroom management and some other things. Uh, but as this evolves, it also means that the community now You can network and utilize the community as a large part of that whole education. And if we take that proverb, it takes a community to educate a child, or it takes the village to educate a child, or to develop a child, to raise a child. It it really becomes a component of the school as the uh, community of learning. So the school should not just be open from 8 to 5. Why can't we use the school for uh, suppers for soup kitchens in the afternoon why can't we have kids working on curriculum that has cooking classes that brings in people why can't we have schools where you know you have uh mentor teachers that are students in high school helping english second language immigrants coming through right like there's so many elements that could be if we really opened up our thinking in terms of the school as the hub of learning uh, for our whole community. Now, that being said, experiential learning where we do internships as they go out to these internships, it's also not just about going to do an internship that usually ends up being a clerk job or, you know, getting the coffee or so on. It's really about let's bring in the expertise that we have and link it to what we are designing as the learning experience for the child. Oftentimes when we brought in the community before, it would be one-off programs Somebody's coming through with a presentation. We think it's good. It's oftentimes not fitted in what they are learning or what the projects they're doing. Uh, So it's really about connecting at the right time for the right reasons and, and leveraging what we have in our community.
0: Yeah. And I just see, uh, you know, I see a lot of barriers to that. I think that there were some schools that were moving in the right directions. Um, and then, you know, the pandemic hit. But but I've been so happy with some of those internships and some of the programs that have continued. Um, there was a, a recent um, article and kind of a communication media blitz about uh, a Building Futures program that we've got where kids are going in onto the job sites still. During, Even though we're in the middle of a pandemic, they can still get that kind of partnership between our trades and our schools and get kids engaged in learning.
1: Yeah, no, and, and I mean, that's exactly it, right? So for a long period of time, we've pivoted towards, uh, you know, K-12 and direct university route, and that, that was the be-all, end-all. And we've tailored our education systems towards that. But if you look at some of the high-performing education systems around the world, that also uh, that also uh, valor—not uh, valorize, but um, uh, value—the vocational training as well, and also have a futuristic look at things. Right. So many of us don't know what those new jobs are. We talk about all these new jobs, but we've never seen them in action. We've never seen, you know, bioengineering or robotics or. Uh, AI or data analysis and what those jobs look like so when kids go back home and they're looking at what profession they want to do well oftentimes it's the big five right like it'll be okay well I want to go the medical route or I want to go into teaching or I want to go into psych or engineering but there's no real view on you know some of these major professions that are opening up as well or What does it mean to become a plumber and owning your own business? What does it mean to be a carpenter today and owning your own business? Uh, And and we know that those are jobs that do very well, actually. So uh, why is there a stigma for us to, you know, help the kids that are good with their hands to continue in those professions? So I, I think you're right. You hit it again on the nail, Corey. You're hitting 100 today. Uh, (laughs) all
0: right (laughs) remember these days because they don't often (laughs) happen
1: in terms of you know what we do have some thinking to do and i was in finland about a year and a half ago and uh in germany at the same time on the same trip and and that's what really kind of opened up my eyes is their views and the perceptions and the biases weren't really there in terms of they valued all professions and, and and which was something that was really interesting when I was walking through there
0: yeah yeah i think that like i said i i, I think that there are, are ways to get that happening despite it and, and that leads me to that i've got i've got some hope <laughs> i've got some hope yeah. for for what we can do and speaking of hope i want to talk about your your last book because you know it's a, <laughs> I was going through all your material and kind of re-looking at some of your stuff, and I noticed that it's very different. Your latest one, Hope, Where Are You?, is really different. I know that it was released at probably a very different time. And I was just wondering, what what are you looking for with that book? What what were you looking to say, and and why is it so different? What made you kind of tack and go take a completely different um, route on that book?
1: Yeah, I'm a bit like the character of the dog in Up, uh, where he sees squirrels and he pivots. (laughs) Uh, I I think that's the best way to describe that book. Um, You know, that book came about from, uh, because most of my work has been in terms of the teaching profession, protecting public education, how public education is extremely important for democracies, for strong democracies, and giving everybody an opportunity and that we need to reinforce public education. I think that's sort of what what you were thinking about in terms of where I was concentrating on. Uh, and hope where are you takes a you know a total a full turn because it's a children's book. And yeah, so it came about actually from conversations that we were having in the middle of the pandemic in May or, or in April. Uh, I had friends in New York City uh, that were pr- uh, principal and some teachers there that were going through this and we're losing colleagues and and students and you know family members and at the same time I had a friend of mine in Bergamo Italy who's a teacher who had just lost his dad three aunts and countless other people Uh, Bergamo was really hardly was really hard hit during that time and then New York City was hard hit right after and and one of the things that he had said was you know we can't lose hope for our children and I thought to myself that's that's brilliant and 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 so reflective of his personality being such a giver and then realizing how he, what he was going through. And that's the line that he used. And I thought to myself, that is probably not how I would react to this. And, uh, it made me think, you know what, maybe we can help out, help people have those conversations about hope is still around us. So at the time, a friend of mine had released, uh, with her daughter who was a graphic artist, had released a children's book and I called them up and I said hey why don't why don't we get together and tell the stories of tell some of the stories we're hearing of students around the world uh, and some of the pitfalls that could happen uh, a, a, as sort of a warning and an opening as well for parents to have and teachers to have conversations with their students about you know hope is not lost and it's still around you and and that's where that children's book came out actually Uh, what we thought was going to be around 20 pages ended up being six beautiful stories uh, that we took from all over the world Uh, we were hoping to write a few more but then we we got sidetracked but the project took off and got translated in 50 plus languages it's a it's a it's a definitely a, a, a still-on-working project because the translations were done all over the world by English second-language speakers that took it into their own languages. Uh, we opened it up for coding parts so the kids could code their own stories with it. There's, I think we're closing in on 1.5 million downloads. I haven't looked at it in a while. Uh, but it's a free resource for anybody to use anywhere. So, and you can buy a, a real hard copy from Amazon uh, which all the money now goes to UNICEF. It was a UNICEF fundraiser as well, uh, where, you know, people could give a donation if they wanted to, to help out. So it, pretty proud of it. I uh, never thought I'd write a children's book. I'll be totally honest with you. Uh, uh, and it, it really hit me in the feels is the best way of saying it. Uh, particularly the last story of, uh, Alessandro that, that one really hit hard. Um, but, uh, it's something that it gave me some creative outlet when I needed it during COVID and some of the darker times as I was speaking to uh, some people all over the world.
0: Yeah, I just I just think it's outstanding. And so, um, yeah, if if you're listening to this, um, go grab it. You don't even need to pay anything, but you could knowing that uh, it's supporting some worthy causes. And I really enjoyed it. And so did my kids. So, yeah, I thought it was great.
1: I appreciate that. It's uh, uh, yeah, you can find it at HopeWhereAreYou.com for free.
0: Let's, uh, let's tack into something a little bit different. I'm wondering, because you speak with so many people and you encounter people who are teaching in learning in different countries, is there something that you think about learning in education that you really believe is true, but that you get some pushback on or when you're speaking, some people disagree with you about this belief that you have?
1: I think it might be self-pacing guides. Uh, and setting up the class that way is probably something that we're seeing some friction uh, within education or some, uh, some differences, uh, obviously with the world being so polarized at the moment and, and how we are evolving. And basically, you know, it used to be the analogy that, you know, we're trying to fix the mortar of the airplane while we're in mid-flight. And that's how education systems are trying to pivot. I think it's, I think it's, we've jumped out of the plane and we're trying to fix a parachute with a Swiss Army knife, but without anything. (laughs) I think, I think that's, I think that's really the analogy. Uh, Because You know, at the end of the day, as as I'm seeing COVID and what's happening and being able to create the scaffolding for children to be able to do that, I think is something that, uh, you know, sometimes gets some pushback. Uh, The second one would probably be uh, when I really talk about education as uh, you having a massive toolkit. And you got to pick the right tool at the right time for the for the right kid, and that that's what teaching is all about. It, it's not about uh, having one magic pedagogical approach. It's about being able to reach the kid in their zone of proximal development for whatever element you're looking at at that point, be it competencies, skills, uh, curriculum outcomes, uh, social emotional. There's so many layers to our jobs that it really isn't just about getting them to reach a certain curriculum outcome. And if that's what it is, then we're not doing it properly. And I think I get more pushback from sectors outside of education on that one. The ones that try to strip down education to, okay, it's all all the learning is about just reaching these curriculum outcomes. And oftentimes we'll get that from ed tech. Uh, that are trying to push something or we might get that from the business world that are you know with austerity measures are trying to strip down education to its bare minimum particularly now with COVID-19 and some of the responses we're seeing as we're as we're progressing through this so I I think that's where I probably get the most pushback Corey it's not necessarily within the profession itself because I mean everybody has the way to approach it and I think we understand the nuances of it, some, type, some days better than most, but I think it's from outside the profession and outside education in terms of what is education really.
0: I've been seeing that a lot too around questioning teacher expertise. It's this whole idea that you can make a teacher-proof curriculum and um, pay an uneducated person who is not doesn't have a background in pedagogy to, to, to deliver this. That's not what real quality education is about. I, I absolutely agree with you. Expertise is being able to do the right thing at the right time for the right students almost instantaneously and having not only a huge bag of tricks, but but also knowing when to use them. I just love that because we've been talking a lot about how do you develop that with teachers, and I think it's so important.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there there is a place and time for a more... Sh- For a more structured curriculum or lesson plan, uh, I'm looking at some of the jurisdictions globally that are really struggling with teacher recruitment and you end up with a 13-year-old in front of the classroom and one master teacher maybe. Or you know I'm thinking of Vicky Colbert's work with Escuela Nueva and the self-pacing guides and realizing that they only had one teacher and then a, a lot of people that wanted to help but without the expertise so they needed to figure out a way to deliver it by using the, the teacher's expertise. And, you know, there are some areas like that and completely agree with you. And we're starting to see it in the Western Hemisphere and OECD countries when you're comparing urban to rural. Oftentimes in rural areas, they, they're they missing some expertise and subject matter, especially in the high school level, uh, where we now need to leverage some some, some technology or some, some teachers that are in other areas. So I, I think we do see that on that front. Uh, it's a big battle as well between privatization and public education. Let's let's not kid ourselves. A true strong public education that's well built and that has the professionals uh, that's needed to deliver it costs money. And, and And some people see it as an investment. Some some people see it as a cost. And and the governments that see it as a, as a cost are trying to offload that cost as much as they can towards. Privatization and privatizations—if they come in and they say that we can deliver it by taking a kid off the street with six weeks of training, uh, or taking a graduate from university, give them six weeks of training, and we can put them in the worst social economic areas—that's going to cost you half the money—then you know they're going to look into that, uh, and, and I think that's an issue that we need to push back on. Part of that is the managerial culture that's coming, that's come into education uh, through the late eighties, eighties, late eighties, nineties, uh, and then with the PISA and then the comparisons and then the the perversion of the, the data that's coming out of those to try to compare ourselves to each other when when the context really matters. What you're doing in Alberta or what we do in New Brunswick or what somebody does in Nova Scotia versus what's happening in Singapore or in Finland or in Chile is vastly different. And and the contexts are different. The cultures are different. The governance is different and all those things affect the classroom. And, and I think at the end of the day, that's going to be an issue if we don't realize we do need the expertise and the expertise might look a bit different depending on where you are. Um, I think another issue to that is as we're adding that managerial part to it, there's also a patriarchy and, uh, that is patronizing towards the workforce that is uh, mostly female. And, and teachers oftentimes have kept their mouths shut throughout this uh, because they are in service of students. They're in service of their community. It's not about showcasing what, what they do. And what we haven't realized, I think, as a profession is that I think we need to now, um, because if we don't, then we are going to be engulfed in what, uh, you know, these austerity measures and this privatization movement and so on, because they have large communication budgets. They have large marketing budgets, right?
0: No, I totally agree. I want to pick up on something you said uh, a little bit earlier, and it was relating to learning environments. And so you were kind of thinking about and talking about how it's so difficult to uh, compare different countries because of all of the different contextual factors. But I also think that there are some, some common threads around learning environments, and there are some ways that we can set up really powerful learning. And so even though the context might be different, there are some different things. What do you think about that? What are some of those things that you have seen that are universal to have great learning environments where um, we are getting students to to develop their understanding of important concepts and maybe even some of the things that, that you've experienced through the years uh, about, you know, environments or ways that we can make learning better in terms of um, uh, that are universal?
1: I think the first one is really setting the right culture. Uh and and culture is a living thing. I know it's not exactly the physical environment, but it's part of the environment. And uh Seymour Saracen, who's one of the top education researchers of all time, probably, uh, who we all stand on his shoulders, he always talked about any change in education doesn't work if you don't if you don't look at culture first, and he was completely right. And it's the same thing for businesses, actually. You see a lot of businesses merge and then slash employees and not look at the culture and then not understanding how that affects production and so on. But in schools, the culture is a real living thing, and you live that culture every day. And setting the right culture, I, I believe, is extremely important. And that, and that's different in elementary school. It's different in middle school. It's different in high school. It's different at university, for that matter. Um but it is quite similar across the board across the world. Now, that being said, there are certain contexts and certain uh, countries that have different governance structures and different uh, approaches to family life that would also change that a bit uh, from what I've seen in some of the contexts that I've been in. So I, I think that would be the first one, Corey, is really that. And then the second thing is use everything at your disposal to create a learning environment that's that's engaging for the child or for the student um you know you look at outdoor education we are not confined to those four walls and a walk in the park is often or a walk in the woods is often something that's very beneficial and you can do science by doing that you can do social studies you can do you know there's all sorts of things you can do with that walk um And when I talked about creating the right culture, you're looking at, you know, you could create circles, Uh, giving student the student voice is extremely important, but then also agency and the autonomy. So as you're creating the culture of being able to, okay, these are the top five things you need to do this week. I'm going to be doing a mini lesson on Tuesday and Wednesday on this. You're going to have some free time here, here and here. Let's showcase to you how to plan and how to attain those goals. So what's the priority? What's the second goal? What's the third? And then now you're giving them the ability to become lifelong learners, but also to own that learning, right? So I think the environment really starts with the culture. And then after that, use whatever is at at your disposal to engage the children. Like if you're in the middle of London in England, I mean, there's no reason for you not to be doing constant uh, – outside of the school you have so many resources out there now that might be a bit harder in a rural area but if you're in a rural area when it comes to science you probably have access to animals or to uh, uh, physical geography that other areas don't have access to why not you engage in that as well right it's it's really about understanding where you are who you're teaching what the cultures are and then to leverage that to be able to really create an engaging environment for the child.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. And being able to have taught in many different environments, I think, the, I think many of the same things. I, I'm, I'm totally in line with you. Hey, you're a, you're a tech guy. I was wondering if you had a favorite app or a favorite website or maybe some other media that you like to turn people on to look towards, whether that's a teaching one or even in your personal life. Well,
1: I mean, my favorite website's ESPN,
0: <laughs> but uh, that's not going to help you
1: <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, uh, you know, I've got some different ones that I do use uh, for collaboration. Uh, some that I have used in the past couple of years has been um, Evernote and Trello, which are used oftentimes. One of them we use in terms of our family to create checklists and so on. Another one I use more for my writing. Uh Murals is a great website in terms of brainstorming within groups uh, for collaboration. So if you're looking at a bit more of that online collaboration space, uh, the more we're doing with COVID-19, the more I'm realizing that uh, in terms of teaching, it does have its major limitations and that the school really cannot be replaced for many of the elements uh, that we need. Uh, it can for like the top thriving 10% that would be able to do it no matter what, but for the other 90 and mind you that top 10% would need school for other reasons, but the other 90, not really. Um, other apps that I kind of use, I mean, Twitter is a great tool in terms of professional development, uh, mainly for networking and the professional learning community. Uh, that you can engage with Uh, that being said you really need to watch uh, uh, watch out for polarization and only following what you want or what you like because that'll bring you down a rabbit hole Uh, but that's a tool that i use quite often enough in terms of uh, discussion Um, one that i use on uh, on my my uh, apple device would be clips for short videos Uh, which is really interesting because you could build a, you know, a year in the life of a student through one second clips a day. Uh, but there's also all sorts of other things that you can do to help, uh, communication and showcase to, to parents what's happening. Um, would you like one in terms of education, uh, Corey sure.
0: Or? Yeah. 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 Whatever. This is already a great list. Just, <laughs> uh, yeah. Whatever you kind of use, it's always. Uh, I find it always so interesting to to see what others are using and finding valuable um, to go out and try, and if we can maybe find them valuable as well.
1: Yeah. So we've been doing a lot with Spotify actually uh, through getting kids engaged in showcasing who they are through their own personal mixtape um so if you're looking at your culture and the seven elements of culture and which song would rel- would showcase that with your example so we use spotify for music uh which is not something often people would look at for that uh, eh, there's a app called explain everything it's explain everything yeah so it's an app that sort of helps you it's like a whiteboard it helps you draw it out you can you can use clips now uh, but as these phones evolve, the apps are evolving as well. There's many apps that you can do that on, but explain everything was a really good one
0: as well. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, uh, do you have any books that you like to, uh, send or refer people to any books that you find yourself quoting a lot or, or ones that you're, you're, you kind of treasure because, um, you return too often.
1: Yeah. It really depends on who I'm referring it to. uh, uh I mean, I, I'm big in coaching books, having been a coach for a very long period of time. And, and I refer back to John Wooden's sort of pyramid and his biography and how he approached coaching it was never about uh, approaching coaching from the sporting point of view, but from the human, humanistic hu, humanity point of view is really what he approached it for. Um Books that I've been reading through education, Young Zhao is obviously one that uh, really is in my wheelhouse and and, uh, very much is aligned with what I think, which would also bring in Andy Hargraves, Pak Tiang. Pak Tiang is mostly for, and Andy Hargraves, both of them are mostly from a a systems point of view in education and from a leadership point of view in education. Um, And and all three of those, I think, would be some that I, I would refer to from that end. In terms of pedagogy, uh, Paulo Ferrer's, uh book is obviously one that uh, I believe in strongly in terms of public education and strong democracies. Um, some books that I've read lately, uh, or in the last couple of years that I often quote as well, would be um, Ed Catmull's uh, Creativity Inc., who is the He used to be the leader at Pixar, still is, and now is also at Walt Disney. And mostly the quote that I often use that he uses is, if there's more uh, truth in the hallways than there is in the boardroom, your company's in trouble. And in education times, in education, oftentimes that is the issue. Uh, There seems to be a misalignment of the communication. So it's a line that I use often. It's a great book as well to look at. How to align the vision and mission, and how to get uh, feedback. So, how to create communication feedback loops for your employees and your high your high performing directors, and how how do you have those communications? So, it was interesting on that front. Um, and I think those ones would be the key ones that I'm I'm reading at the moment. Uh, I've also gone through a lot of biographies, like Barack Obama's biography, Martin Luther King. Uh, Hello. And some of those major leaders.
0: That's great. <laughs> sorry, my. Sounds sorry, like my we've little, got a third my, person in this interview. Yeah, Sounds awesome.
1: Yeah, my little guy's been jumping into my interviews all over. All, he's been all over the world in the last six months, which has been kind of interesting. <laughs>
0: love it. I love it. I think that that's another new reality that we've um, we've adjusted to. It yeah. always makes me smile. I find it. Everyone's always embarrassed or like they kind of get uptight about it, but I actually think that it's uh, it's great.
1: Well, I had him with a friend of mine who uh, used to be involved uh, at a very high level with unesco and i was interviewing her for a video webcast for facebook and he jumped in and jumped right into the
0: interview hey you're uh you got a background in sport and coaching and um, and so i'm wondering if that might be um uh, a part of this answer but is there anything that you do every day or most days that, that helps you to be well and healthy and continue the good work that you do <laughs> yeah I, do. I,
1: I mean the first one is all always family uh, particularly t- to keep the lines of communication with my wife always open, uh, and making sure that any idea that I come up with that goes through her filtering and her uh, acceptance first and foremost. Uh, and the main reason why is because you know we're a team, so I think I think that's a key element of what of what I do to keep myself healthy because a healthy relationships are key to being able to perform. I think that's, that's one. Um, I I've done a lot of, I did a couple of Ironman and, uh, physical training for me is extremely important and helps me filter through my thoughts, but also keeps me happy and keeps me ready to go. Uh, and like anybody else, there's ups and downs with that, you know, like when life comes, uh, and hits you by the side of the head with, We had some, uh, my mother-in-law passed away a couple of years ago. So we went through five years of her having pancreatic cancer and towards the tail end of that, you know, we were in the hospital quite often. So it's not something that I could concentrate on at that time. I had to put it aside, uh, for what was better for the family. Um, but I've gotten back into it quite a lot and I think that really helps. It's a bit the old adage of, you know, you got to put the face mask on first uh, before you put it on uh, anybody else that you're traveling with in an airplane, and for teachers in particular, we struggle with that. We really struggle with putting that face mask on first uh, because we're always being asked to help, and we're always wanting to help and and that's what that's where our heart lies. But the truth of the matter is if we don't take care of ourselves first, then we struggle. And I sort of go at it now from a point of view of my relationship with my wife is number one, and uh, my own health sort of together. And I need to take care of those two. And then after that, it, follow, it follows suit to uh, my children. Uh, and then from there, anything that I can do. So little things like getting up early, going to train, uh, from there, doing a bit of mindfulness. Uh, and then making sure that we have check-ins every day, uh, morning and night, uh, for our relationship to be healthy and, 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 to take a getaway. Uh, we try to do one every three, three or four months. A good friend of mine, who's an entrepreneur, who's very, very busy does that with his wife and make sure that their relationship is still strong. Uh, so they do a little getaway every three or four months, uh, guilt free. And, uh, I think that's a priority
0: hey uh what's next for you i know that uh you're always working on something it's one of the things i find so inspiring what are uh some of the questions or problems or projects that you're looking at, at working on next
1: uh to be honest with you i we just finished a crazy two weeks um with with the world teacher day and world education week and the global forum and then uh making sure the scaffolding was all d- uh, ready and up and running with my students and It was a bit nuts. So this weekend is going to be quite quiet. Uh, But then I have my uh, third book that I need to get done. Uh, The deadline's coming fast and furious. So uh, that's probably the top of my list at the moment. And then to continue to help uh, through advising, uh, consultant, um, or uh, collaboration with uh, some major projects that are on the go globally, uh, a few of them locally and then continue to teach. I mean, those are the main ones and then try to take care of my health. So yeah, there's, (laughs) yeah, it's never a dull moment. Actually, would be the best way of looking at it. Um, but those are sort of the priorities at the moment is the, to try to finish my book uh, my third book and then to, uh, continue to help with the collaborations that I'm helping with globally and to advise and then, uh, to take care of my health and hopefully get out of this pandemic, uh, in a relatively good shape
0: well here's here's the hoping that that you do and um and i know that you're well placed for that and i want to thank you so much for your time for for giving a little bit up of your uh, of the of your free time and uh i just can't thank you enough for sharing your insights and just really appreciate you coming on the show thank you so much
1: well thank you for having me cory and uh, you stay safe out there and hopefully you have a good weekend